Welcome to the Outlines podcast. I'm your host, Jess Carter, and today's episode is part two of our look into the life and murder of Diane Jones. If you haven't listened to it already, then I'd suggest that you check out part one, The Life of Diane Jones, which will give you all the background on Diane herself and a timeline leading up to her disappearance. For those who did listen to the episode but would like a quick recap, Diane was a 35-year-old who disappeared at the gates of her Coggeshall house at around 11.20pm on July the 23rd, 1983, while her husband was parking their car in the garage. At the time, she was two months pregnant. Nine days later, her husband reported her missing, and October 22nd of that year, her body was found, dumped a 50-minute drive away from their home, hidden in a copse near Brightwell in Suffolk. On today's episode, The Death of Diane Jones, we'll be delving into what happened in the three months that she was missing, the police investigation leading up to the discovery of her body, and any developments in the 34 years following that discovery. A little warning, this episode may contain description that listeners will find disturbing, and I urge you not to continue if you think this may be you. As always, I'd like to remind you that the work I do to compile this show is taken from publicly accessible sources, and while myself and any additional researchers I may use make every effort to ensure that information is accurate, sometimes sources conflict, articles misreport, and rumour becomes fact. Please, if you spot a discrepancy anywhere in our episodes, drop me an email at theoutlinespodcast at gmail.com or go to Facebook and search for The Outlines Podcast where you can let me know by comment or message. For now, though, let's leap straight into the investigation of the murder of Diane Jones. start at the gates of Lee's farm one cold evening in mid-November. Myself and friend Gemma Frost drive down to the once home and location of the last sighting of Diane. The house sits on a small near-dead-end road. You have to pass two houses on your left before you reach Lee's farm on the opposite side and when you do the road gets rough the path eventually leading to a muddy and half-concealed entrance onto the A120. Before July of 1983, Diane and Roberts Road would have been relatively busy, but in that month the Coggeshall Bypass had opened, diverting traffic that would once have travelled through the village, and meaning that the volume of cars passing the little entrance to the side road on which Lee's farm sits would have been greatly diminished. Now... In 2017, it's grown smaller. 
a lonely and dark road lit only by the few houses dotted either side. On the left, hidden by hedgerows, is the concealed stretch of the A120, which travels from Stansted to Colchester. And on the right is open farmland, a few outhouses and vast, flat Essex fields. This side looks roughly the same as it would have done when Diane was still alive. But in July 1983, that long, hot summer, the fields surrounding the house would have been high with crops. It was in those fields, on August the 4th, 1983, 11 days after Diane disappeared, that a massive hunt for her body would begin. Among those assisting in the search were Metropolitan Police Dogs specially trained to detect corpses, a helicopter and 40 police officers, two on horseback. According to her husband, it was not unknown for Diane to disappear for a few days at a time especially after an argument, and he had only become concerned when she had not returned within the week or made any attempt to contact him. On the night that she vanished, she'd worn only a light summer's dress and heeled sandals and had taken no other clothing with her. Very early on, it appears as if alarm bells were being rung for the police. The week of her disappearance... Chief Inspector Barry Devlin is quoted as saying, She could have hitched a lift. She could be miles away. She will probably be in a disturbed state if she is still alive, and concerns for her safety are growing. It's still being treated as a missing person hunt, but we are looking for a body. For the next three months, the search for Diane, alive or dead, would take police all over the Essex countryside. As well as on land, they would search what are described as several stretches of water around Coggeshall, but all were without success. The clip you're about to hear describes the coordination of frogmen sent into search around the River Blackwater. I've separated my team into two halves. Myself and another diver is going up in a rubber dinghy. And we can see the bottom, even though there's a lot of weeds there, but uh, visibility is quite good, so we can see it from a surface search. The other three divers are going the other side of the bridge and working towards the town, and they're in actual dry suits, and they're swimming on the surface with uh, snortles and uh, diving masks. And once again, it's not very deep at all, so they should be able to see from the surface, especially a, a large object. So how many men have you got on total on this unit? Well, there's uh, nine of us, including myself. Do you think the depth of this river is the same all, of, all the way through the Coggeshall village? Well, I think on an average, it's uh, probably the average depth is about four to five feet. But once again, as I said before, the visibility is excellent, so we should be able to see anything. And is that visibility good all the way through? Well, as far as I've been, I've already been up the river for about ten minutes, and what I've seen at present, uh, yes, I should think it should be all the way through. But the river must get quite deeper once it moves away from Coggeshall. Yes, well, normally going the towns, you do find it shallow. But as it meets up probably with the main river, then it will obviously get deeper. But once again, I mean, 
Where do we end our search? I mean, this could go on forever more. As well as rivers, divers investigated a reservoir in the village of Kelverden, just four miles away, and were sent to nearby Marks Hall Estate, where, on a tip-off from Forrester's, they searched a covered well whose top had recently been removed. While they did find many animal carcasses and bones, there was nothing there that could help with the investigation. In the initial weeks that Diane was missing, a special incident caravan was set up outside Coggeshall Police Station, and it was asked that anyone with information relating to her disappearance should go to the caravan directly or call a specially set up hotline. Through this hotline, they received numerous tips of sightings of Diane, including two calls from a man and woman respectively, who both placed her in Bury St Edmunds, a town almost an hour's drive away over the county border in Suffolk. While these tips came to nothing, police were still hopeful of finding clues to Diane's whereabouts and conducted a series of house-to-house calls in Coggeshall, where they questioned the occupants of over a hundred homes stretching along the route that Diane and Robert would have driven home that fateful night in July. In mid-August, they began to question the residents of Malden Road in Colchester, where Diane had lived at the end of 1982 and beginning of 1983. Neighbours were quizzed, and Detective Superintendent Mike Ainsley, the man in charge of the investigation, was quoted as saying... We are still hoping to find her alive. As each day passes, I grow more concerned for her safety. I will be a very happy man if I find her, but I don't know if she is alive. The land and water search for Diane was an extensive manhunt that spanned areas surrounding Coggeshall, Colchester, Kelverden, Cressing and parts of Suffolk. But police were not just concentrating on the surrounding areas they were also looking much closer to home. At Lee's farm, they looked through outhouses, dug up vast parts of the garden and road, and thoroughly searched the house itself, pulling up floorboards, looking for anything at all which might lead to answers in their attempt to find Diane. worker in the past, I understand. Had you met her when she was doing that work? No, I never met her as a social worker, although I bet she'd have been a great social worker. She could twist me around her little fingers, and that takes a lot of doing. There's been an enormous amount of publicity about her disappearance. Do you think if she heard all that publicity, she would have made the call to police to say, look, I am here. I don't want to come home, but I am here. 
Yeah, she will. You know, uh, she'd have been to see her daughter in the last three weeks. She wouldn't have let that go. Um, no, the only reason she isn't found the police is because either she couldn't, because she was being stopped or whatever. Um, Diane knows what the consequences are for doing something like this. She knows what she can get done for if she does get caught. She's not stupid. She's an intelligent woman. You know, but if she is out there and is listening, I hope she does come back. Yes, I was going to say, if she is listening to this broadcast, do you have a message for her? Yeah. If you don't want to go back to the doctor, come out and see me. I'll see you. The man speaking in the clip you just heard was one of Diane's former lovers. In part one, we talked a lot about the tempestuous relationships that Diane formed with the men in her life. After she went missing, her father was quoted as saying, her trouble in life was choosing the wrong men. The police certainly seem to feel that one of them, present or former, may well know something in relation to her disappearance. In mid-August, they appealed for these men to speak to the police, and Mike Ainsley said a number of former lovers of Mrs Jones had come forward since their appeal. However, police had called on some boyfriends already who had not come forward of their own accord. I think at this point... And before we get into speaking about those who the police felt it worth interviewing for an extended period, it's important to talk about the role that the media played in covering this investigation. From the time that Diane was reported missing, news interest was huge. On the surface, the case is interesting enough. Pretty, pregnant woman disappears yards from luxury home while Dr. Husband parks the car in the garage. Then you look deeper and the bizarre nature of their married relationship is revealed. Diane and Robert both engaged in extramarital affairs and had drink-fuelled, violent and public rows. While Robert continued to work as a village doctor, Diane did not live her life as it was expected a married woman in her mid-thirties would. And so, the press swarmed down on the village of Coggeshall, anxious for exclusives on her sex life and violent outbursts. In early August, as reporters waited again outside the surgery where Robert practised, some locals took it upon themselves to hurl insults, scum, parasites. In response to this, the local press whined and dined those who had known Diane, offered vast sums of money for topless photos of her apparently taken on a French beach, and even sent young and pretty reporter now a well-respected and award-winning journalist, to try to use her looks to entice Robert to give them an exclusive, and it worked. It's difficult to sift through the misogyny of some of these articles and find out what is fact. You read one column where a friend of the couple is quoted as saying, Diane treated Robert like a slave, and later, in a different article, the same friend says that his comments have been made after a good lunch but maybe the damage has already been done. I'm trying my hardest to only compile fact for these episodes, and as I read reports, I am always keeping in mind that maybe they are true, maybe they are somewhat true, and maybe they are just the narrative that the press wished to follow. But I think now it's time to move on from the media coverage, to get back to fact, and talk about the discovery of Diane's body, and I'll return 
I'll recap and add to our knowledge of what happened in the days after Diane went missing. And then I'll look at suspects. Brightwell, where Diane's body was found, is a small village in rural Suffolk. Now, it can be easily reached by the A12, but in 1983, the road did not stretch that far. It was accessed by small, country lanes, the village barely more than a single road itself. Gemma and I drove up to Brightwell just a couple of weeks before I started writing this episode. It was early November, close to the time of year when Diane was found, and the A12 could be heard thundering past the place where her body was dumped. It was pure luck that she was even found at all, located by a pheasant beater in a dense copse next to a well-used footpath. It was Saturday the 22nd of October, almost three months to the day since she went missing. She had been badly beaten with what would later be revealed was a spiked hammer, commonly used by Slaters. It had been a hot and long, evidence-destroying summer, and her body had suffered terrible decomposition, so much so that identification was carried out through dental records. But she was still dressed in that same mauve sundress, in which she'd last been seen alive leaving the Woolpack the night of July 23rd. While her dress was the same, she was missing her handbag, sandals, watch and necklace. It's easy to see how it could have taken so long for her to be located. Gemma and I avoided the A12 and drove the back lanes around Brightwell on near-deserted roads, past high wooded areas past the vast farm fields where police teams would work in 1983 to beat down the ground in search of clues. Without the main road, there are just a tangle of little lanes stretching to Ipswich, Woodbridge, Felixstowe and to the River Deben. We were happy we bought a sat-nav along and happier still to drive back towards Ipswich, away from the high bank depression of those little country roads. At the end of October and beginning of November 1983, with Suffolk police now involved in the investigation, the search expanded through wood and farmland and frogmen were sent in to dive flooded ground around the River Stour near Stratford St Mary, a half hour's drive away from Brightwell, just off of the A12 in the Coggeshall direction. As far as I can tell, Nothing of interest was found during these searches or the others conducted around Coggeshall and Lee's farm before and after Diane's body was located. So now, we need to go back to the weekend of Diane's disappearance. To Brightwell, 
late in the evening, to an admission that we did not learn until the case was reopened in 2013, the admission that there may have been a witness to at least part of the crime. Our possible witness came forward after Diane's body was found and stated that on the weekend of July 23rd, and they were positive that it was this weekend, they saw someone taking a rolled-up carpet from a car in that same location. They said it looked suspicious, and so they even jotted down the number plate of that car. But when nothing came to light for so long, they threw away that number plate, and with it, maybe, the identity of Diane's killer. Finally, it is time to look at those people who the police considered to be suspects. In 2013, Eric Shields, one of the men in charge of the investigation after it became a murder hunt, told a local newspaper that the main frustration is that nobody was brought to justice. Everybody working on the case would have liked to have seen a conclusion. It was disappointing for everybody that no action was taken against anybody. There is an obvious suspect, and we will come to him, but there were a couple of other men who the police initially wanted to speak to. There was a mystery caller who came to Lee's farm the day of Diane's disappearance and inquired about a caravan for sale. There was also someone spotted early morning near their home some days after she'd vanished. I do not know if either of these men were ever located, and other than them, the suspects were all people who Diane had known. Police were keen to speak to her former lovers and then to her husband, Robert. In the beginning, when it was still a missing persons case, Robert was interviewed on a number of occasions, even going so far as to hire a lawyer for a four-hour questioning at Whitton Police Station in mid-August 1983. As the last man to see Diane alive, he was under suspicion from the start. People remembered Diane's words as she left the Woolpack that evening. I'm not going home with you. You'll beat me up. Then, there were the nine days in between her disappearance and Robert reporting her missing. And during this time, he would sell their second car, later telling police that he could not remember to whom he'd sold it. This piece of information has only just been revealed by Detective Superintendent Mike Ainsley, who's in charge of the search. However, he won't say whether he thinks it's the car in which Dr Robert Jones drove his wife back from the pub on the night she disappeared. The blue Peugeot, registration GHK823T, thought to be an estate, was sold through the Exchange and Mart newspaper, and detectives believe it was bought by an Essex man. I would like the person who currently owns that car to come forward and uh, let me know where they are and where the car is at this moment. There should be a fairly good chance of that happening, shouldn't there, because it's going to be someone who's just recently bought a car through Exchange and Mart. You've given me the description, so they've got to be out there somewhere. Yes, I hope so. I understand the person is in the Chelmsford area, but uh, that isn't confirmed. Meanwhile, a detailed examination of the doctor's large white farmhouse goes on today. 
Scientific officers are also making forensic tests on a saloon car the doctor uses to drive to work. The car was tracked down by mid-August and forensic tests were conducted upon it. And I think it's important that I point out now how strangely innocent people can act under great strain. And Robert was definitely under that strain. From day to night there were press following him to and from work, waiting outside his house, outside the surgery, all wanting to know if he could shed light on Diane's disappearance. Articles appeared, calling him the village Romeo, accusations he later had to defend himself from, and this pressure made his behaviour erratic. In the few months before her body was found, he sold their second car, put Lee's farm up for sale and embarked in early September on a long holiday to Canada and New Zealand. It appeared the strain was all too much for him. A couple of days after his house was searched for the first time on August the 5th, he went drinking in the town of Molden with Diane's ex-partner Paul Barnes. On his drive back home, he was in a crash, and when police arrived, he told them, I've lost my dog. They asked him when he last ate, and he said, God knows, I'm over the top. I've had six pints, no, four pints. For this offence, in December 1983, he was banned from driving for a year. He told the court, My emotional state at that time was very poor. I was extremely upset. I was not thinking as logically as you are now. His lawyer added that on the two days preceding the offence, there had been a massive search at Dr Jones's home involving 200 policemen. He was also being pursued by the press after carrying out his surgery under extremely difficult circumstances. After returning from his holiday in September, Robert went away again, this time to visit family in Wales, and it was while he was there that on October 25th he would be informed that police had discovered Diane's remains. To think that uh, somebody can only be questioned for up to 48 hours and then released, but that's not the case. What happened was that the police um, wanted to question him and, and find out as much as they could about his, uh, about his whereabouts on the night that uh, Diane Jones went missing, and they questioned him for about 55 hours in all, and then he was released. His, his solicitor didn't apply for a writ of habeas corpus, which he could have done after the 48 hours were up, but the solicitor was happy for the questioning to go on above 48 hours, and then, as I say, after 55 hours or thereabouts, he was released. Where is the murder inquiry going from here? Well, that's a difficult question, because the murder inquiry seems to have run up against a, a, a blank wall for the moment. There's very little that uh, the police seem to have found out new about Diane Jones's disappearance. Um, they've been doing new searches of Dr. Jones's house and, of course, the garden around the house. They've been digging it up again this morning, but uh, a police spokesman this afternoon declined to say what they had found or whether anything was taken away for further investigation. So it's very difficult to say. They're continually appealing for witnesses, people who might have been along the roads that presumably the murderer of Diane Jones went with the body on the night that she was killed. But it doesn't. It seems that they've got a very difficult problem on their hands, that they seem to run out of, of avenues to follow up. The clip you've just heard was from November 18th, 1983. As well as Robert, his ex-wife, Sue Smith, and Diane's ex, Paul Barnes, were questioned. 
but it seems as if no more evidence could be uncovered. After those 55 hours, Robert was on bail from November the 16th until February the 9th, 1984, a bail which had been furthered by three weeks after Robert gained an extension for personal reasons. On the 9th of February, he endured eight hours of questioning before his eventual unconditional release. While he was being questioned, again police searched his home, the garden and trees and bushes. They used probes and metal detectors, and whenever something was found, they set to work with spades. Ultimately, it was all to no avail. It would be another six years before Robert Jones was arrested again on June 16, 1990, after fresh evidence was reported to have been uncovered. However, his bail was soon cancelled, and again the case went cold. And this is where we are now. Every so often, the Essex and Suffolk police review their cold cases in the hopes that something new might have come to light, and this is the same for Diane. Anyone who might have information relating to her murder on the night of July 23rd, 1983, can call Suffolk Police on 101 or Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Outlines podcast. And if you've liked what you heard, then please be sure to share with your friends, rate us where possible, and contact if you wish. I hope to produce episodes regularly, and I'm aiming for bi-monthly, but I'm working mostly on my own, so please, bear with me. This podcast was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter with additional input from Gemma Frost. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. Thank you for listening to the Outlines podcast.